Hi, and welcome to the Global Game Changers podcast. I'm James Digby, and I'll be your host for the show where each week we join a special guest and co-host and find out about their journey into tech and hear the stories that led them to where they are now. We'll sit down with startup founders, VCs, leading figures from corporate tech giants and the governmental sector to find out what makes them tick and the quirky memories that they've had along the way so far. In this week's episode, we sit down with Patrick Lee, one of the founders of Rotten Tomatoes, and he shares his story of how they got started and what life was like in the early days of the internet. This episode was recorded live at Tech Barbecue 2019 with my guest co-host Alex Fellman, where we go into detail of some of the key decisions that the executive team at Rotten Tomatoes had to do in order to first survive, then thrive. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. We're here live at Tech Barbecue. As always, it's Startup 42 Media, James and Alex. I'm super, super excited to be sitting down with Patrick Lee from Rotten Tomatoes. I, I'm a little bit speechless that we, we have him in the booth today, so I, I just want to ju- jump right into it. Patrick, thank you so much for being on the show. Can you tell people just a, a little bit about your background, just get a flavor, get to know more about you and go as far back as, as you want? We'll probably bring you back farther than, than yeah. We had someone go from the womb and the other one, yeah, we're going to go really far back. So like le- last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Patrick Lee. I was, uh, parents were from China, born in Los Angeles, grew up in Maryland, went to school at UC Berkeley. Uh, by the way, go Bears. I, I think oh, we're gonna, oh, cool. Uh, I'm 09. Hmm, I'm much earlier than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I decline to say. <laughs> no, I actually, I started in, uh, 92. I should have graduated in 96, but I took 12 years to get my undergrad because we were doing startups at the same time. So, okay. So if I don't Did want people to know how old I am, I just say I'm 04, which is actually correct. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Wait, wait, did, did you're Asian, though. So, I mean, like the same genetic makeup will last yeah. for another few decades on top. So it's okay. Yeah, yeah. You looked about the same in, <laughs> when you should have yeah. graduated no, in for it. <laughs> actually, in college, I looked like I should have been in junior high probably <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that D- did berkeley give you any issues like i mean it sounds like you had almost a van wilder like career of of getting your degree did they give you issues for taking 12 years to graduate or at first they you know they were like hey are you actually going to graduate um but when i was showing them that i'm really doing businesses and stuff and you know that we had real clients and things then they started becoming more understanding and actually i think the advisor that i worked with Towards the end, she actually like knew Rotten Tomatoes, so she was totally cool with us, you know, <laughs> really? taking longer. So she, you were validated from her knowing your platform. Yeah, yeah. basically, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that was that's cool. okay. Yeah. yeah, and um, yeah. So I went went to UC Berkeley. Ended up leaving after two years to do startups. Convinced a couple of friends to leave school. What, did what, six what was, different startups. Okay, I was about to ask. So what were these initial startups pre Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, so the six were first was selling computer systems and components from, like, our apartment. Uh, <laughs> People just a great go business. there and was it mail order? Um, yeah, more like they're they're getting us through online, okay. like emails or selling through that, and then uh, we'd go and buy the parts, build, build <laughs> the systems, <laughs> yeah, and then and then actually give it to them, either what? deliver it or they pick it up or we'd ship it. Oh, wow. were, were you able to get the proper margins on something like that? It wasn't great. Uh, it's not a, it's <laughs> not a great business. And... and actually, the problem back then was because... At that point, memory prices and, and CPU prices were dropping like super fast, which was great for consumers, but it was bad if you hold any inventory. And so mm. we tried not to hold inventory, but sometimes you you have to order a little bit in advance or sometimes 
uh, you know, someone returns something, it, you know, you're holding that inventory, and it could drop a lot, even like within a week. Um, so it was not a good business uh, for us. Then yeah. from there, the second was doing in a web design company, doing a lot of work for the entertainment industry. So we were doing stuff for Disney Channel, Warner Brothers, ABC, Artisan, MTV, Is this the time when they were, they were going into digital for the yeah, very it's first like right steps? As, this was in the 97. Okay. I mean, it was pretty early, you yeah. know, when people still made like movie websites and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually made the online flash game for uh, who wants to be a millionaire which was like a really popular show at and the time well, yeah yeah and then from there we ended up doing Rotten tomatoes <laughs> after we sold Rotten tomatoes i went to china did something there that's a little bit like yelp went to hong kong after that did something over there that was like myspace <laughs> came back did a mobile game company so wait, all, all kinds of stuff wait i, I don't know if you've seen this but it, what it kind of sounds like you did do you watch silicon valley mm, no no, but I but, seen the, it. but but there's a there's a scene in Silicon Valley where they have a Chinese character who basically like puts up a whiteboard of ideas and just says we're gonna make the Chinese Google, the Chinese Facebook, the Chinese MySpace, and just goes down them. And it sounds uh, like yeah, you're yeah. doing a little bit of of that almost. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was yeah. I mean that one was it wasn't so that so much that we wanted to try and do MySpace. It was just we had relationships to like celebrities and stuff over there. Okay, and we just thought oh it'd be kind of cool to build something that kind of started from celebrities. Um, I think we actually made it a little bit too complicated. We actually should have gone simpler. And the ones that worked were a lot simpler. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So you went through a spectrum of different things though, within very space of time, uh, right? That was across 23 years. So about four, four years oh, per oh, company. Wow. So yeah. uh, did, you, did you feel like you had to move on from each one as you kind of came through? Or was it just like an organic um, thing, like something yeah, else yeah. took your energy and yeah, something kind of else? How, how do you know it's time, like with so many, how do you know it's like time that this one needs to be sort of shot and put out to pasture? And um, All six companies shared two things in common. One was I was trying to do companies with friends. So every single one of them had at least one co-founder, if not more. That was someone I knew from freshman year of college. Would okay, you okay. recommend that? Yeah, I was about to ask the same question. Uh, I think so. <laughs> You know, a lot of people say don't, but it's like you're working with these people 24-7. Um, you'd It's better to work with someone you actually know and like. Uh, and the way I look at it is having a co-founder is it's like a marriage. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to just marry a stranger, right? So I feel like you should actually – you shouldn't even have a co-founder until you've known them for a few years, I think, really. Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't just come to, you know, a conference like Tech Barbecue or mm -hmm. something and just – meet a person and be like hey <laughs> let's do a company together most of the time it's going to fail and a lot of times when companies fail it's because partners don't get along but mm -hmm. i think that's a really interesting thing because i i, I kind of feel like a lot of people come to events like tech barbecue or other tech conferences almost for the reason of they're looking for a match or someone to be a co-founder yeah. or, or early do you recommend that that's not the case <laughs> um, no it's fine to meet them there mm -hmm. but you should get to know each other for a while, like actually meet up a bunch of times, get to know the person, see if you get along, make sure you can actually like trust each other. So you um, like maybe work on some projects together. Yeah, you know, it's just again, it's like you can meet someone at a bar, it's fine, but you don't get married right away. You like you would probably go on a couple of dates. Exactly, first. you kind of see them across the bar. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. they're nice. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think when you look at a lot of tech startups, a lot of the ones that you can think of are started by friends from in high school or college. Like Apple, mm -hmm. they were friends in during high school. Um, Facebook, Yahoo, Google, all these people are just like folks that knew each other in college. Well, with Rotten, so I want to jump into Rotten Tomatoes, of course, 
tomatoes, tomatoes. Either's fine. Either's fine. Yeah. <laughs> what What was the impetus for for creating such a, a platform? Was it your your big movie buff, or where did it come from? So, at the time, I was doing my design firm for doing a lot of work for the entertainment mm-hmm. industry. It was primarily myself and my co-founder Stephen, who was our CTO. Uh, we had a creative director, Sen Dong, who was our who handled a lot of the art and everything for us. He was the one who created Rotten Tomatoes. And the idea was, I mean, he was a huge movie buff. Actually, Steven mm. was also a big movie buff. I'm, of the three of us, I was the one who's just, I like movies, but I'm like the summer blockbuster guy. Yeah. So, like, I'll see 80% of the movies coming out in the summer, and I will see almost none of the ones coming out for, like, in the Oscars mm-hmm. kind of movies. So that's that's who I am. So well, if it has an Oscar, you probably wouldn't have seen it. Is that Well, when it was five for Best Picture every year, I would have seen most likely none of them. Now that it's 10... I'll see like, you know, Black Panther. Where they widen widen their scope. Yeah. (laughs) So now that they're getting like the token blockbuster, you will see the token blockbuster (laughs) at the Oscars. There's times when like after one won, I think I went to see King's Speech and I was like, oh yeah, that actually was pretty good. But it's like, (laughs) I generally don't like seek those, you know, whereas I'll go out to see Avengers and Shazam. I'm kind of curious, considering that your co-founders are movie buffs, are they like constantly trying to get you to be like, Hey, Patrick, come see this or come see that. This is really... Um, or they kind of given up at this point. Actually, know. like Sen, <laughs> he he kind of sits in between the two. Uh, Steven is, we'll see, a much wider range and, and he does like the Oscar kind of stuff. He'll see everything. Sen was like, at the time when I first met him, he was really into Hong Kong movies. And he got me into like, you know, back then, like Jet Li and mm-hmm. Jackie Chan and all that kind of stuff. So that actually relates to Rotten Tomatoes. When Jackie Chan was finally kind of making a, you know, he came over with Rumble in the Bronx and all this stuff, but he also started, I think, was one of the first ones with Rush Hour mm-hmm. with Chris Tucker. Yep. And Sen wanted to know, what is everyone saying about the movie when it's coming out? Mm. So Rush Hour was another really big impetus to, to Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Know, to find out really what was the feeling of this Chinese-based actor hitting across to the Western screens and kind of yeah. what does that translate into? And, and Sen wanted to know, like, what is everyone saying about it? Mm-hmm. And so then he kind of was like, if I'm going to gather this stuff, I might as well share it with other people. And the idea was, if you open up a newspaper, you'll see a full page ad. It looks like a movie poster with quotes on it, mm-hmm. right? If the movie's good, those quotes will be from professional critics like Roger Ebert. But if the movie's bad, <laughs> they'll still be good quotes, but it'll be from like a radio station DJ or people who are not professional critics. <laughs> and actually, they even had fake quotes too, yeah. a couple times. Um, so his idea I- was like, what if I do the same thing have all only professional critics and have all the quotes good and bad. Mm. And so when you saw the early versions of Rotten Tomatoes, it looked like a movie poster with quotes all over it. But so it was the good artwork and bad. was there, and then you had the, the graphics of the, the movie itself, and then you would put all the bits of... Uh, I mean, even now you look at it, section. it still has quotes and stuff. It kind of doesn't have quite the same look as the early days, no. but the early days it was based on the idea of that movie poster with the quotes all over it. Fantastic. Wow, that's super cool. I think what you were jumping on that, I think that's always really interesting. You could, Like you said, you could always tell the quality of the movie based on who they're quoting. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it get, gets very, very, like, obscure. John like, from the Plumber <laughs> Shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'd be a giant quote, and so it's like tiny little, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah, that's always really fun. Did the movie industry support it or go against it? Or was there just indifference to thinking that we don't really care about something like this? In the beginning... I don't think they even... Uh, actually, I think in the beginning, the studio... Uh, like Pixar, for instance, the first year that we had launched, uh, they came out with A Bug's Life. Mm-hmm. 
And the day a Bugs Life released, we're like, oh, what's the spike in traffic that we're seeing? Because back then, like anything will cause a spike in traffic. Because <laughs> we didn't have <laughs> that much traffic. Release. <laughs> and, and when we looked into it, like the IP address, it was actually coming from Pixar. And what we were thinking was pretty much someone at Pixar saw our page, sent it to everyone else at Pixar, and they were just on our site refreshing because not all the reviews come in at the same time. So we were, we were checking for reviews. When we found it, we'd add it to the score. And I think they were using it almost like Google to search for Oh, so it's a manual reviews. process at that time. Yeah. And then they were waiting, like thinking that it would just be an automatic feed as soon as someone typed it in. Kind of yeah, I mean, actually, when it, in the earliest days, a lot of reviews weren't online. So Sen would actually go to the library <laughs> and get the magazines, get the newspapers, find the articles, read it, write down a quote, go back home. And it was all stat- static HTML. Like later when we ran it as a company, we started like uh, automating things a lot more. And we eventually mean, that's built... That's not scalable? Going to the local <laughs> wayfair in, in every single... <laughs> I actually think it's better. It's part of like what I talked about yesterday with Focus is it's better to make it manual. Mm-hmm. The example I give is, you know, if you're going to build a house, it's better to start with blueprints because if you want to change a room, it's a lot easier to change a room on blueprints than it is after you've built a house, mm. right? And so even when you're working on a startup, it's better to do everything manually until you know, like, this is actually what we want to mm. do. And then you, like, automate it. You harden it, you know, like, you build tools yeah, and you automate really it. Nice a lot of people will try and build this whole platform first without having any clue if that's actually what people want. That's really interesting because I do a lot of, like, advisory board consulting work with companies. And, and one of the things I always end up telling them is, like, you can do whatever you want with the tech but unless you have a solid foundation, like no matter what you do with the tech, it, it doesn't really matter. Like do it as low tech as po- like figure it out as low tech as possible and then start adding the bells mm-hmm. and whistles and all the other stuff. Because if you don't do that first and there's kind of garbage in the beginning, it doesn't matter what tech you add on top. It's it's still going to be kind of fundamentally crap. Yep. yep. And it seems exactly. like that's sort of the same mentality that, that you're bringing up here, which I, I think is is really, really interesting. I just had a quick question just out of curiosity on that. With that sort of really manual process, what was sort of the, the, I would assume there'd be some kind of lag time of how quick you could get these actual quotes and, and, and whatnot once a movie. Like, in the beginning, uh, Sen would usually start like Wednesday or Thursdays because a lot of the reviews would start showing a couple of days before okay. the movie came out. And he would be pulling like all-nighters working on it. And actually wow. that first year that he went, after he came up with the idea, we were hosting it for him. But we were actually my, so my, it wasn't part of the company then. It was just no. Sen going doing this kind of crazy thing on the side, like him just passionate about it so much so and doing all of this legwork. Yep, wow. he was just doing it for fun. We were hosting it, and uh, he had a couple of friends who were even helping him out. But he would just go to the library, gather it, pull all nighters, and do it. And when he launched it, we were all like, "Oh, this is pretty cool." But it was actually affecting his work because we had all these big contracts from like <laughs> Disney and everything else, and he would end up. Like calling in sick or coming in late or even when he came in, he was like falling asleep. And so there's a, a point in time where Steve and I were like, hey, man, like you need to make sure you're still able to do your job and everything. But then after that first year, uh, you know, where we had Pixar and like Netscape and Yahoo were like highlighting it as like, you know, cool side of the day or week or month. And uh, Roger Ebert even wrote an article for a magazine. I think it was Yahoo Internet Life, actually, where he had an article pointing out his favorite, you know, 20 movie websites and Rotten Tomatoes was one of them. And and this was all in the first year. And after that, you know, Steve and I were like, oh, you know, maybe this should be the business. So you didn't didn't even expect it to do anything at all. So you just literally 
popped it out onto the world and said, this is what is there. We'll see, kind of thing. And then more and more people picked it up and it became then this organic thing where studios are looking at it as well as then the, the media or the, you know, the, the journalism side as well kind of coming towards it. Did you mm-hmm. think when you released it that, that it would be like that? Because it was so quick in the first year, you were saying. Yeah, uh, I don't think Sen really... I mean, he just did it for fun. The feedback was positive. People were finding it useful. And so he just kept doing it. And then we were hosting it. After about a year, we're like, you know, maybe this should be the business. Mm-hmm. I went out, raised uh, a million for it. And we took our entire design team of 25 people, put it on Rotten Tomatoes instead. The whole mm-hmm. company And we gave the our design firm to another group to take over. Oh, wow. And we said, because we were like, should we did do both? Did you sell off the book? Yeah, we, we, we gave it to another company. We, we kept 40% of that company um, because we're like, we don't think we can do both properly. So we decided, you know what, let's just focus on this one. And They must have thought you were crazy. Like, we just got all these customers and they want this for it? Sure. Well, I think at that point, it, the thing is when you're doing a design firm, like you're always working for the customer. It's never your thing. It's always mm. their thing. And we love doing stuff for entertainment industry, but everything was like, um, what was the term? Like hurry up and wait, or it, like it, they always need it. Also, like yesterday, yesterday, um, and and so there'll be times where there's nothing, 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 and suddenly it's like we we need it like immediately, and we're like you know, so we're always rushing, um, mm-hmm. and it was just tough. It was always on crazy deadlines and stuff, and we did like the stuff we were doing, but eventually we're like we want to do our own thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But ironically, after we raised money, this is in January 2000. Like two months later, the uh, stock bubble burst, the so internet like bubble burst. Purchased. Dot com. Yeah, huge. Dot com. Yeah. Um, bubble bursting, and 18 months after the bubble burst was 9-11. So between those two things, it was actually like super hard. We actually had a cut from 25 people down to seven within a year. So <coughs> women, you, went, you you had 25 people that were doing a successful well, business, running it well, decided then to do Rotten Tomatoes. Which is essentially a pretty interesting pivot. Basically, you like had the company and just did a very interesting pivot. But then 18 months of circumstances yep. change then everything again yeah like had I known and if I could go mm-hmm. back in time uh, I think what we would have done what we should have done is probably knowing all these great people we had to let go is we should have just taken some of the best people from that group and just be like you yeah. all run the, the design mm-hmm. firm you keep it and we'll t- split off a team that's only going to do Rotten Tomatoes and we don't cross. Like, that was the yeah. big reason why we gave it away was we were very nervous that if we tried to do both, and, like, we had a long discussion about this, but, like, if we try to do both, every time there's a big deadline, we're going to probably end up pulling everyone off of Rotten Tomatoes mm-hmm. to try and finish this project to fulfill the Even deadline. And we're like that half-physical line, uh, invisible yeah. line, it still would have been the case. Yeah, that right? was the thing we were very worried about is then we're like, we can never let Rotten Tomatoes grow to its full potential if we're constantly going to get pulled off on projects. Sure. But I think if we were able to get a really strict line across, like nothing is shared outside of maybe like our CFO or some, mm-hmm. you know, the financial people, um, then I think that could have worked because, and it would have been really interesting because with our design from back then, we could build anything that people needed for web or or even when mobile started coming around. Yeah. Uh, and with Rotten Tomatoes, we would have had like crazy traffic. So it's like probably at that point, we could have been like, we want to do this and we would have had the ability to build it and the ability to like distribute it. Um, oh. But but no, we didn't, <coughs> you know, we didn't know. We didn't know that was going to happen. We just didn't know that that could be the case. Yeah. I mean, of course, hindsight is is great after the fact, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and like, you know... Come back into it that you survived that process. You survived that period where you can yeah. get through it. And what was it that, that let you survive? Downsizing for one, I'm sure. 
but then is it a refocusing of stuff or uh we downsized we also had to take a salary cut like so everyone took at least 30 percent uh pay cut myself and our marketing person paul we went to zero and i actually like slept under my desk for like half a year um we had a nice office uh, that could hold <laughs> you raised the million right you, you did that uh, no we had the office from our design firm and you know, I had space for 20-something people. Okay. And, and, and now you're seven. seven left. Yeah. So, so you converted half into, into so, an apartment. So I took three <laughs> of the cubes that were kind of in an L shape, and I just took all three, and then I just took all my stuff and put it into, like, the drawers. And when you close the drawers, you can't tell that someone lives there, you know? Oh, it just uh, looked like, a, so you like, like the, an office the space. So you like the koala and the sing, basically, in, in the theater. The oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Desk. Yeah. And, like, you know, we don't have, like, a one-eyed chameleon that wakes you up in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I, I like, had a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so we did that. And the thing that made it easier to get through, um, even though it, it sucked to have to let go of people, was every month, every quarter, we could see that we were growing. We were growing Still. in traffic. We were growing. Our brand was growing, and our revenue was growing. And so even though it was tough, we did those cuts to get ourselves to break even so that we could guarantee we wouldn't die. Mm -hmm. But we could tell that things were improving. Like I've done companies since where, you know, the growth is flat and mm -hmm. that's, it's way harder because mm -hmm. when you just can't see it growing and you're trying all these pivots and everything and you just can't seem to make it move up, it, it's like a soul killing. Patrick, quick, quick question on that and you're just mentioning it. What were sort of the initial business models and monetization strategies of Rotten Tomatoes that you were sort of getting this revenue growth on? Mm. So like, we how, made revenue in three ways. 50% uh, came from advertising and that was mostly from the studios. 30% mm -hmm. from affiliate deals. So that's mm -hmm. like selling the CD, the DVD, uh, uh, mm. the soundtracks, the movie poster, uh, movie collectibles movie tickets. Um, and then 20% came from licensing. So that was from groups that wanted access to our data. Uh, mm. uh, you know, That's the tomato meter, something like that. interestingly high. I thought it'd be less than that and more on the other side, but 20% wanting 20 the information, was, the data that you collected. Yeah. What, that, would they, what would they use it for? I mean, it was more like uh, the scores, things like mm -hmm. that, so they could put on their site. And we actually had two different models. One is if they had a lot of traffic uh, or, or brand, we'd let them use it and they'd promote it and drive traffic back to us. Um, or right. we'd work yeah. with, you know, publications like Hollywood Reporter, Variety, and they would include our tomato meter and that would help our brand because we'd associate with these very, very good publications. Um, but then if it was something where it's like they didn't really have any traffic that they were driving back, then we would charge. And licensing was great because we'd charge them, you know, minimum a year or two year contracts and they would pay every month. And so it was very stable. Whereas, like, with advertising, mm -hmm. it tended to peak heavily in the summer and a little bit in around Oscar season. And affiliate tended to peak heavily around Christmas, mm. right? And mm -hmm. so the, it was more spiky, that kind of revenue. All the way through. And the problem for us, a big problem for us was always on the advertising side. The studios would buy ads before, like, well in advance of the movie coming out. So they don't know what the score is. And every time an ad campaign came through, we'd be, like, praying that it was fresh because when it was rotten... Studios would be unhappy, obviously, like marketing their movie on our site and our site is saying the movie is bad. Um, that was a tough thing because it's, it's public reaction, right? You can't decide which is... Yeah, it's, like, it's what the critics were saying, but... Wait, add a, a question on that, though. Would the studios that, say, had deals with you guys try to push you to 
I don't want to exactly say manipulate or, or make changes to, to try because they, they were to paying. fresh or, or whatever. We had some instances where they were trying to threaten us, pull, want to pull the campaign, things like that. But, but we can't control the score. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that studios did try a lot was they'd go through, read all the negative reviews, and mm-hmm. they would try to come back and be like, oh, these aren't negative. Um, and in those cases, we would reread the reviews. We would, uh, like check if some cases were like we're not totally sure we would check again with the critics and be mm-hmm. like what do you think is this do you recommend seeing the movie or not because mm-hmm. sometimes it's, it's not always the clear so like if it's two and a half stars out of four it, it could kind of go either way um that's the only thing that potentially could work is if we somehow got it wrong or the critic got it wrong mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they'd also a lot of times try and send us a bunch of reviews mm-hmm. they're like oh here's a bunch of good reviews you forgot and you didn't include and we're like oh those aren't professional critics those would be like the radio station djs and stuff like that mm-hmm. And so they would always try that, um, and then like random threatening and things. But we're like, we don't write this, we don't make the score. So, mm-hmm. and if <laughs> we, we ever changed it, like yeah. we'd be out of business. Like no one would ever trust us again. A quick question on on that. Um, I'm just kind of curious about this based on what you were saying. What was sort of your criteria for figuring out like, okay, we consider this to be a professional critic, this to be call it an amateur critic, or or how did that kind of? So uh, Sen created a bunch of rules around that. Uh, are One you able to? Sh- oh, I guess you were about to. I was like about to ask if you were able to share some of those. Yeah, um, I think it's. We had it online. I believe it's still online. If okay. you go and look, uh, like on the bottom, I think you can access it. But it was stuff like you'd have to be part of a professional critics society. So there's like online film critics society, you know, L.A., New York, whatever. Have all these different organizations around critics. Uh, I believe you had to be one of part of those write a certain number of reviews per year because mm-hmm. you know that that's mm-hmm. the whole thing with the radio station DJ they might only write one or two a year like mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it just never be good <laughs> yeah <laughs> that they might have been like paid for who knows right yeah, yeah. whereas a, a real critic will be writing a number like every week well, right mm-hmm. um, so there's a certain number they had to write per year and I think it's also maybe a certain amount of reach mm-hmm. through their publication I think it was right. some combination of those three okay. to be considered right. professional it's interesting to see, like, you got to a stage where you, you launched really quickly and you got out there. Did you have competitors come after you and replicate quickly after you launched, or did they just come? Um, for us, our competition is really folks that would compete for ad dollars from mm-hmm. the studios. Um, so it could be anyone, basically. So it would be like IMDb. They were owned yeah. by Amazon already by then. Um, Yahoo Movies was a huge competitor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of, like... the past tense there. <laughs> Uh, I mean, <laughs> I think I think Yahoo's still quite big on the movie side. Okay. Um, there was a group called Metacritic that does yeah. scores similar to Rotten Tomatoes, but they do it for movies, games, and music. Mm-hmm. And actually, when they first started, or when they they actually originally wrote to us, I think it was like a, some lawyers or something. I didn't see the email. It went, Sen saw it, where they suggested that we go into more categories. And we had talked about this also. We're like, should we do a lot of categories or should we do one? And we said, let's start with one and make it work first rather than try and do more. But but why were they trying to push you into more categories? Oh, they just suggested it, I think, maybe as fans or whatever. And we were like, no, we're just going to focus on movies. So then they went and launched Metacritic. Oh, okay. Bits. Yeah. So Which they is totally you to do it. And you're like, no, we don't want to do it. Like, okay, we have to do it. Then. Yeah, no, and that's uh, totally fine. But the one thing they did that we weren't super happy about was... Uh, then they started coming onto our forums for movies and actually writing like, oh, the score is not great. You should totally use Metacritic instead. And when we looked at the IP, we're like, oh, it's all coming from Metacritic. So we actually <laughs> had to 
you know, like block, block blocked IPs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the different but, various homes of the developers. Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, but they've done a good job with games. So, like, Metacritic is the score yeah. for games. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that, I feel like that's a very interesting case of sort of, you know, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Essentially. Yeah, that's the way we looked at it. As, as what, what's going on with that. Yeah, that's I mean, I'm sure cool. MySpace knew Friendster and Facebook knew MySpace. Like, mm -hmm. it wasn't like these came in out of a vacuum. Mm hmm I don't know. I was just going off that point. There's, there's really no. I mean, I, I'm just fascinated by this whole story about Patrick. It's just you know, coming into this day, age, you, you kind of set up a company and and try to launch it in probably one of the toughest times mm -hmm. of the, the most recent era, and you've kind of come up on the other side of it. Are there things that you would like to have done differently apart from the you know the, the match between the design company and and Rotten Tomatoes at the beginning or Yeah, I mean that was at the beginning something we could have done differently at the end uh we sold in 2004 so we had offers even a year or two before that from different groups but they were you know 10 cents on a dollar 25 cents on a dollar and actually our investors were totally fine to take those deals because everything else our investors invested in went to zero during that time you know okay. 90-some percent of our wow. competitors all went out of business after the market crashed. Yeah. And so um, the thing that we eventually got offers uh, that were above our post-money valuation, and that was essentially what we had as our criteria to sell. We're like, we're not going to sell for less than what our investors invested at because we don't want to lose money for our investors. Yeah. Looking back, that, was a, that bar was way too low we should have had a higher bar but i think because of uh, the stock market crashing mm -hmm. and 9-11 we were just in this mentality of like we just need to survive and when we finally had this kind of offer to sell uh that could make our investors money we're like oh i guess we should take it um and it was tough because back then every year they're like there's going to be another crash there's going to be another terrorist attack. Really? Yeah. They're just for the waiting next, for it. I don't even know, five years after 9-11, every time I got near 9-11, everyone was just, like, nervous. Yeah. Uh, like, stadiums, you went to go see a sports game, everything was, like, orange-level alert during that time. So it was just a crazy time. I would say our, our biggest mistake, really, was we didn't go out there, we didn't network. That should have been my job. I was terrified of public speaking, um, interviews, things like that. I would avoid it. Uh, I didn't network at all, so I didn't know anyone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were in Silicon, we were in Emeryville, so we yeah. were in the Bay Area, but we weren't in Silicon Valley, and we weren't in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. We were a movie site, but we weren't in LA, mm -hmm. so we just didn't know anyone, and so we mm -hmm. didn't have advice on like, should we sell, how to sell, yeah. all that kind of stuff. You, um, you're kind of new to the movie industry and that that whole side, right? But you came yeah. from a different angle. Yeah, and so then the biggest issue I think for us was we probably could have optimized on our sale a lot better. Like, mm -hmm. just the timing of it or getting more competitive offers or should we use a bank? There's, like, so many questions that we didn't know. And as entrepreneurs, you kind of just, like, wing it. You just <laughs> learn everything through, through trial and error. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, it's like, how many times do you have a Rotten Tomatoes to have a chance to sell it? It's like, that's yeah. the kind of thing where if you mm -hmm. have a chance, you should do it right the first time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I think we didn't do a good job on that. And had we optimized it better, I, th I think we could have definitely gotten more or you know towards the end of when we were going to sell it like google had actually expressed a lot of interest in buying and they called us they found us called us and said hey we we heard you're going to sell we'd like to talk but by then we had already signed a no shop agreement we weren't legally allowed to talk so we didn't wow and we went ahead and just sold it anyways but looking back you know even if they paid the same price they weren't public then like if we just got stock instead um 
I don't even know how many more times in value they are versus when they. I don't think we should know. I don't. I don't <laughs> even look. I don't. You, look. Don't, you should not look. Yeah. <laughs> no. So yeah, I mean, so that's another big mistake I made. And so for me to try to fix that mistake, I was like, yeah, very likely I'll never have another Rotten Tomatoes. But one thing I can improve is things like public speaking, uh, mm -hmm. things like networking. So I've actually mm -hmm. really tried to flip both of those and make them into almost like strengths at this point. And take that into the next one. Are you yeah. doing anything else now at the moment, Patrick? Would you work? Uh, no, I mean, uh, after the last startup, I just got really burnt out. Um, 23 years straight, uh, okay. no breaks, crazy amount of time, crazy amount of stress for most of them. Yep. And then I was just like, you know, I'm going to take at least half a year off and just travel seeing friends and family. And that's it. now it's been 18 months. Um, <laughs> and it's great. I've been doing a lot of speaking, a lot of seeing friends and family, yep. a lot of traveling, um, a lot of mentoring and advising, yep. advising mm -hmm. startups, but also just mentoring in general, that different accelerators, things like that. Is it the sort of mentoring that you wish that you had while speaking yeah, in a startup? Yeah, the thing is nowadays there's, it, there's like a million accelerators and incubators and all this stuff. The, back then, the only one that existed was, I think, Idealabs was the one that I can remember. It was an incubator. Yeah. You know, and nothing else. There was no Y Combinator and none of this stuff. Accelerator was a new term still. Yeah, right? accelerators didn't really start until Y Combinator, I think. And that, I think that was a couple years after we had sold is when the first batch of Y Combinator started. 2006. And yeah, we in sold in 2007, 2008, we were trying to get people to understand the term accelerator over incubator. Yeah. When we launched our... So one. now it's like, you can't, you throw a rock, you're going to hit an accelerator. You'll probably hit two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you bounce and hit a couple. It's as well, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, back then, it just didn't exist. And so there just wasn't this like knowledge and information that you have now. I mean, so many things are better now than they used to be with... Uh, all the cloud services and everything. You know, back then we had to actually get our own servers and shove them into you know, above net and <laughs> our own racks and <laughs> things like that. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. And Sen now it's was just actually like, just living in the server room. Uh, it was mostly Steven, actually. Oh, really? was. <laughs> yeah, but it was crazy. I mean, and now it's like things that were taking up easily 30 to 50% of our time on the tech side. It, it's all just easy now. Yeah. Do you think you could create a Rotten Tomatoes in this day and age? There were Again. ones that came after us that were very similar. I mean, uh, Flixer eventually bought us. They were like Rotten Tomatoes 2.0. They focused very heavily on user-generated reviews. They leveraged mobile. They leveraged Facebook mm -hmm. very aggressively um, to grow quite large. And then they also had really good timing in terms of like raising money and selling. And then they actually acquired us. And together, like we sold to IGN Entertainment. IGN sold to News Corp. Flixer bought Rotten Tomatoes over from News Corp. And then Flixer with Rotten Tomatoes, sold to Warner Brothers and eventually sold to Fandango. So now Fandango owns everything. Um, mm -hmm. But they came really? around. And there's been other ones that I've seen like that people have told me about. Uh, I think one is called like Letterboxd or something. Uh, yeah. You know, I think it is possible, but it's not as easy. Just going through it, would you have liked to have gone through the ride? Like, you know, of, of going to the different studios and then changing across and then, or actually you're really super happy that you, you left a, with just with that one thing and not having to go through that experience? Um... I wanted to go to do my next thing, and I wanted to go to Asia. Mm. Um, you know, being born in the U.S. and stuff, I wanted to see what it was like to be in a place where it's like, oh, there's a lot more Asians. I mean, that's why I went to <laughs> but, Berkeley. But, hold on, but I was about to say, you went to Berkeley. I chose Berkeley specifically because it was like 40% Asian. Asians. And then I was like, well, let me try China or Hong Kong. <laughs> where it's more percentage Asian. Yeah, yeah. but you know what's funny <laughs> is when I went to China, then I was like, I was like oh, yeah, many I'm in a, in a place where they're, they all look like me. And then very quickly, I realized, like, oh, they're totally different than me. Like, mm -hmm. they, I don't even have to say anything. They can tell I'm not from there. Yeah, mm -hmm. I get and, the same. And then I uh, eventually realized, like, oh, I'm actually a minority everywhere. There's nowhere mm. that I'm not a minority. So you're a third culture kid as well. 
in yep. that sense. And yep. you know, you're growing up in a different country and, and go taking those there. It's mm -hmm. it, how did that affect you growing up, going going through? I mean, like, so you felt like you didn't fit in both at home and away. Um, you know, like places like Berkeley and, and San Francisco and stuff are great. I mean, there's it's very diverse there. Mm -hmm. There's a great mix, and then being in tech is also great. Uh, there's just a lot of uh, like. I think tech is one of the rare places where it since it's more just based on like a meritocracy. Like you, right. if you come up with something and it works, no one cares what like who you are in terms of like <laughs> gender or race or yeah. any of that stuff. Um, and so there are a lot of Asians that have been quite successful. I mean, starting with like m recently, like Jerry Yang, and then you know co-founder of YouTube. Steve is is Asian and co-founder of Twitch and mm -hmm. Patreon. All these great companies, you know. And um, so I think in that respect, it's been. Well. It's been much better, and that's actually where I realized like this is where I actually belong more than anywhere in else. In the tech space, tech space like in kind of like San Francisco mm. or California. Okay, whatever. so you couldn't take that out and go into Australia and say I'll thrive in this. Oh, Australia is probably the best example I could have chosen. Australia is like, some, some places. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean it could still work. I mean nowadays I think because of tech and everything else, you come here, and when I'm at Tech Barbecue, I feel totally comfortable. Right. Wow. Maybe if I go touring out outside a little bit, I'm like, oh, there's like almost no Asian people here. <laughs> like you notice it more. But if you're walking around in tech barbecue, it feels like almost like the States. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, 100 percent. It's a definite minority. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, this has been absolutely yeah, amazing. Amazing. I mean, like, uh, really, thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah. I mean, loved me. hearing the history and you delving into some of these points and, you know, and but also some of the lessons that you, you took along the way and you're willing to share. So. Again, hats off and, and appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank, Thank you so you much, Patrick. Patrick. Thanks again to Patrick and Alex for joining us this week. It was great to hear the story of one of the pioneers of the early internet age. And we hope that you enjoy listening to the episode just as much as we enjoyed recording it. Next week, we get to follow up with another story giant of the tech world, with Matt Meeker, one of the co-founders of Meetup.com and founder at Bark. Now, if you got this far, we recommend that you take a moment and hit subscribe to get the latest releases direct to your device. Until next time, I'm James Digby, and you've been listening to the Global Game Changers podcast by Startup42 Media. Startup42 Media